Welcome back to the program. Oftentimes, through fictional characters, we are able to capture an entire ethos. Certainly, Jay Gadsby defines a certain era, as does Don Draper, as does Woody Allen Zellick. It is a rare thing when a real-life character does this, but such is the case with Charles Manson. The Tate-LaBianca murders took place 44 years ago this week, and still, Charles Manson resonates with us. The media has often elevated him as a product of the 60s, but in many ways he would also define the 40s and 50s. He was, according to my guest Jeff Gwynn, the wrong person in the right place at the right time. Jeff Gwynn is the best-selling author of several books of fiction and non-fiction, including The Last Gunfight. He was an award-winning investigative journalist that appears frequently on radio and TV programs. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeff Gwynn to the program today to talk about his new work, Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson. Jeff Gwynn, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Great to have you here. One of the things that is so remarkable about Manson's story and you taking it back to, to him being so young is that the habits and the Charles Manson that we saw for so long really started at the youngest age. He was doing the same things and coming up with the same excuses when he was in the fifth grade. Well, that was the whole point of the book. Though there have been, by my count, 171 books on Charles Manson published, and that's only by the reputable publishers. You know, there's lots of self-published works. I never found the one I wanted to read, which was, how could we possibly have grown this man over the years because he didn't just emerge full-blown in Los Angeles in 68, 69, and 70. And in the process of three years of research, I was able to find all kinds of people who'd never talked before, including his sister and cousin. And his cousin, Joanne, in McMechan, West Virginia, told me a blood-curdling story about Charlie in elementary school, and I wonder if I might be able to uh, tell that story. Go ahead, please. Charlie started first grade in McMechan, a little mill town by the Ohio River. And while he was in first grade, he organized some of the girls in his class to beat up a boy he didn't like. When the principal came looking for Charlie, Charlie's explanation was, it wasn't his fault, the girls were doing what they wanted to do, so don't blame him. And of course, that is the exact same alibi he would use for Tate LaBianca all those years later. What he was when he emerged in the public consciousness, he was almost from birth. What he did over time is perfect some of those sociopathic habits. You talked about how he learned the best lines from other people, that his life was, in Fitzgerald's words, a kind of unbroken series of gestures. In in many ways, he, he he invented himself as he went along. He did, and one of the misconceptions about Charles Manson is that he must be an ignorant man since he's so uneducated. But that's not true at all. In fact, uh, maybe the word crafty more than intelligent might work. But in every stage of his life, he always came across something in our culture that he could twist and turn to his own ends. It really began during one of his first long stretches in adult prison when he was allowed to participate in a Dale Carnegie class. And I found cellmates of his who would say he'd come back after class and practice all the lines 
that helped you ingratiate yourself to someone you just met. But Manson, of course, wasn't interested in making friends. His plan when he got out of prison was to be a pimp, and he thought he could use those lines to attract girls to his stable. Later on, he used those same lines to Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten. Well, when I saw Leslie and Patricia in the California Institution for Women in Corona, California, where they're incarcerated, one of the first questions I asked them is, what could Charles Manson possibly have said to you when he first met you that made you intrigued, made you want to be with him more? And they said, well, he said this, this, this. Line for line, straight out of Chapter 7, How to Win Friends and Influence People. There was never anything mystical, magical about Charles Manson. He simply took some tools he'd acquired, and he was a good enough actor to make it appear that way. In many ways, he was as much a product of the 40s and 50s as he was the 60s, the way in which his personality evolved, the way in which he incorporated so much of, of what we see, for example, in Mad Men today, in, in elements of Don Draper even. Well, that's true. Manson was a sponge more than anything else, in that if there was something useful that he could turn to his own bad ends, he would do it. It's important to remember that he was born in 1934, that's the same year Bonnie and Clyde are gunned down, and he's first raised in a part of the country in, in West Virginia, small town, where a lot of the people looked on the government, on the police, as sort of the enemy anyway. So that's imbued from the beginning. He didn't have the best childhood, but of course he lied about most of it anyway. Uh, he claimed to have been the illegitimate son of a teenage prostitute who cared about her son so little that she tried once to sell him for a pitcher of beer and then threw him into the juvenile system at 10. And really none of that is true. Uh, his mother, when she served a short term in prison for a botched robbery, uh, left him with his doting grandmother and his uncle and aunt and cousin. From the beginning, he was violent. He lied. He stole. When he entered the juvenile system, it wasn't that his mother didn't love him. It was that after consultation with the rest of the family, teachers, administrators, that they thought he had to be in some situation where there were more rules. He constantly used everyone he could for his own purposes. Dale Carnegie in the 50s, he learns things there, also from Scientology. He wanted to see how they recruited members. And then, of course, he comes to beautiful San Francisco after a release from prison, that goes to Haight-Ashbury. And there, he really starts to hone the qualities that allow him to attract long-term followers who believe he's someone special. You talk about how he studied some of the street gurus at the time to see what worked and what didn't. There's a wonderful man in Haight-Ashbury now. Called, his name is Dr. David E. Smith. Still there, but in the 60s he opened the free clinic to take care of the indigent, sick, hippie population. Dr. Smith recalls that, that he knew Manson well, because he would see Manson out in Golden Gate Park in the Panhandle studying the more successful street gurus. Then Manson would come to the clinic, practice the best lines he'd just cribbed on the sick hippies, and when he thought he had them down right, he'd go back out to Golden Gate Park and preach himself. There was never anything original about what Manson was preaching. 
At that time, he was using equal parts, Dale Carnegie, Scientology, and some of the fundamentalist Christian faith that he had acquired going to the Nazarene Church with his grandmother. So, again, he's a sponge. He's picking up what other people have developed and using it for his own gains. The part that is so surprising is the degree to which he was so self-aware of all of this, even calling himself a man of a thousand hats. He's very proud of that. And he would tell everyone that uh, one of the best things about him is he could change personality in a split second to fit the person or the situation he was involved with at that time. He also had an act that he had perfected as a child in the juvenile justice system. Now, even today, Charles Manson is a very small man. I mean, his adult height was only 5'4". And as a child, he always was the smallest and looked the youngest in whatever grade he was in. And in some of these juvenile facilities, he was picked on. He was preyed on by larger, meaner, tougher boys. And what he did then, he said, was develop the crazy Charlie act. So he would act so violently insane that uh, the tougher kids would be panicked and leave him alone. So it also says something of Manson's personality that once he did that, he became a predator himself and did terrible things to younger inmates. But it was a quality he carried on through into his adult life. If he had to, if there was no other way to deal with the situation, he would act insane, babble almost incoherently, make violent gestures, anything to make anybody else observing him, any normal person think this guy Manson, He's nuts. There's also the inherent charisma that Manson brings to it, and you capture that really at the opening of the book when you describe his dancing at the Whiskey A Go-Go in Los Angeles. Talk about that. One of the things everyone agrees um, concerning Charles Manson, and again, I've talked to hundreds of people now who knew him from infancy, really through his, uh, his current old age, 78, in prison, that... The one thing he consistently could do, he had the ability to make people watch him, to pay attention to him. Some of that he got from Dale Carnegie. Uh, I have the textbook, the same textbook that he used, not the volume itself, but the same edition. And one of the things Carnegie urges everyone to do is dramatize your desires that actors do this, singers do this, and you must do this to get attention, which just reinforced what Manson was already good at. Uh, he can be very engaging, could be very charming. And uh, the first scene in the book is when Dennis Wilson and a couple other people take grungy Charlie Manson to the fancy Whiskey-A-Go-Go. And Manson, when he gets on the dance floor, is so manic that everybody else, all these sophisticated people, back off the dance floor and stare at him. And Jacobson said, to observe Manson then, it looked like there were actually sparks of electricity flying off his fingers. He knew how to command an audience. And when you combine that with a psychopathic obsession, with being in control, with benefiting yourself at the expense of other people, it was a lethal combination. If Charles Manson exhibited these tendencies today, if he grew up today with the same behaviors, would he have been stopped before it's too late, do you think? 
No, I don't. Manson could adapt himself. Remember, this is uh, a human chameleon in a certain sense. He would have been one of those people, one of those children and then one of those adults who was always in trouble but finding a way to skirt it. Uh, if he were imprisoned today, he would find some kind of flaws within the system he could exploit. We've always had demagogues in our culture, and sometimes they're named Charles Manson, other times Jim Jones. He would have found a way to recruit followers and use them for some malign end. People like Manson always do. What is it about Manson? I mean, certainly many of the things we've been talking about, but what is your sense of why he still resonates so powerfully with us. Certainly we can look at you know other murderers, other serial killers that were famous at their moment in time, and they don't have the same resonance today that Charles Manson does. I think, I really worked on this. It was one of the things I wanted to answer in the book. And it's not one simple answer. I think it's a combination of four things, if I could tell you what I, what sure. I think those are. The first being that the Tate-LaBianca murders occurred in a time when there were so many other momentous things happening that it seemed nothing was too terrible to have occurred anymore. There hadn't been murders quite like that. Apparently some cult leader and his followers slaughtering innocent people ritualistically. So there was that first shock of media coverage that resonated so much. Then comes a much bigger thing. Manson's sentenced to death in the gas chamber. If he had been executed as scheduled three, four years after his trial and all the appeals had run out, people of a certain age, my age, who, you know, who were around then, we might have remembered him, but I don't think the legend would have carried down from generation to generation as it did. Manson lived, he survived, which gave him the opportunity to continue the crazy Charlie Act and, and so, with selected TV broadcasts and so forth, so he could keep the act going. Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry write a book called Helter Skelter, just an amazing book. It becomes the best-selling true crime book of all time, I think 8.5 million copies sold. So that perpetrates the image. And then finally, Squeaky Fromm, a Manson follower, comes dangerously close to assassinating the President of the United States, which gives the lasting impression that even in prison, Charles Manson can kill anybody he wants to, up to and including the leader of this country. So these things combine. And that's why we remember Charles Manson when most people on the street today can't remember the names of the teen shooters in Columbine, for instance, or the gunmen at Virginia Tech. That's because they died. Their story, to a certain extent, ended. But Charles Manson, age 78, is still with us. As you followed, and, and you did really, in, in Manson's footsteps and looked at his life from early on, as you talked about before, tell us a little bit about what that was like. I mean, one comes away with the sense that there was a certain yuck factor almost in, in that. Well, certainly there is. And if you isolate incidents, you know, they're repugnant. But when you see things fitting into a life, fitting into a pattern, it, that is intriguing. 
I put 21,000 miles on my car. I tried to go everywhere Manson went and talk to all the people who might know something who hadn't been talked to before. And that's the thing. Manson has been allowed up until now to shape his own legend. He says things happened this way and this way and this way, and no one's actually gone out there to look. I was astonished in some cases how easy it was to prove that Manson's lying from finding his mother's marriage license that showed she was married five months before he was born, or copies of his birth certificate that show that he's lying when he says he was branded illegitimate from birth, and there were weeks that went by before the, the birth was formally filed because of that. Not true at all. When you get to McNeckin, where he grew up, where people knew him, they're 75, 80, 85 years old now, they still remember Manson, and they talk about how he had a loving family and was almost spoiled, rotten, and that he was the bad seed, not anybody else. Manson likes to say the streets, his mother, and prisons, his father. That's absolutely not true. When you talk now to people from the actual Manson family, older now, their grandparents, in many cases, have tried to hide what happened from their own families, their children, their grandchildren. And we see that Charles Manson simply progressed doing things on a greater and greater scale of evil until finally it culminated on two horrific nights in, in August 1969. But it wasn't an isolated incident. It was only the latest progression. Did you find anywhere along the way, a tipping point, a point at which Manson's life might have taken a different path if, if something else had been different? I kept looking for one. I thought there had to be this place, this time, that Charles Manson, for whatever reason, irrevocably embarked on a path in life that ended with, with murder and ongoing notoriety. But this is almost a frightening thing. I cannot see one. In all the people I interviewed, and remember now, I've talked to people who've known him throughout his life. No one could ever remember one sweet, funny thing that Manson as a child did. Nobody who knew him as an adult could think of a time that he was philanthropic, that he thought of someone's needs really before his own. Greg Jacobson, uh, who was part of the music community in Los Angeles that Manson belonged on to, I think put it best. He said, after all these years, knowing Manson as he did, reflecting on everything that's happened, his comparison to Manson is that of a cancer cell. That like the cancer cell, all Manson is concerned with is his own survival and really getting bigger, stronger, better. And if that means that he has to destroy, he has to obliterate everything else around him, he does it without any thought whatsoever. It's the natural thing for him. He is a sociopath, and he perfectly defines it. What does this story tell us? What does it tell you about the nature of evil? This book, in a way, makes me sad because it's changed my mind about something that, that I've thought all my life. I'm 62 years old now, and you hit a certain age, and you've had some beliefs you've held all your life. One that I always did was that there is no child, there's no human being, 
that can't somehow be helped, can't be brought up better, can't change for the better. Now, with Manson, having found, really, no redeeming features whatsoever, spent three years looking for anything in his life that might have some sort of positive reflection, I'm beginning to fear that it may be true that every once in a while, not often, thank God, but maybe every once in a while, someone is born who is going to be bad, and there's nothing anyone can do to change that. And if that's the case, I think that's a sad thing, and it bothers me very much. There are followers still to this day that look up to Charles Manson. Very much so, and uh, I've heard from them. When I was working on this book, for about five months I sent Charles Manson a letter a day asking to come visit him in prison. Uh, I had not realized that he'd lost most of his visiting privileges for having uh, cell phones in his cell. Finally, he wrote back to me. It wasn't a very pleasant letter. He didn't want the book to be written. And I'm pretty sure he had an idea some of the things I would find out that proved he's been lying all these years. So later he did give me permission to use some of his prison art in the photo section of the book. But he also uh, passed along my contact information to some of his current followers, and there are more than you might imagine. And we're not talking about spiritually or mentally damaged people necessarily who are too foolish to buy into anybody normal. He's got followers from every background, every degree of education, every niche in society. There's something about his charisma still and the legend that's grown up around him that will attract certain people. I hope if my book accomplishes one thing, it's the demystification of Charles Manson. We're still going to think of him, he's part of our culture now, but I hope we can keep him in better perspective if we know the truth about him. And do you think that that will change perceptibly after his death finally? No. He has had a long enough time to establish the mythology. He's worked at this. The the books, the movies, I guess, are out there. But at least finally we have a book that lays out exactly what he's done, who he is, where he's come from. And again, maybe that will help us keep him in perspective, not as a great mystic, not as a, a brave outlaw who stood up to... Uh, the bad government and spoke the truth and was punished for it. Instead, you're talking about one of the most gifted sociopaths in our modern history. Let's see him for what he is, not what he wants us to consider him. Jeff Gwynn, the book is Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson, just out from Simon & Schuster. Jeff, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.